Amen. So as you're turning to 1 John, we're continuing to walk through this uh, relatively short book of the Bible, even though we'll be there for a while. Uh, we still have the scripture uh, reading journals in the back on the table. So if you haven't picked one, at, uh, one up yet, that you can use here uh, when we gather to take notes, or you can use in your own personal time studying God's Word, then grab one of those um, before you leave. I was reading this past week a book on experiencing God's transforming presence through solitude and silence. And the author in one chapter paints this description of experiencing the presence of God through knowing him. This is what they write. The Old and New Testament writers describe a kind of knowledge that unites the subject with the object. It is a full participation in the truth or the reality being explored. It is the difference between hearing or reading about a person and actually becoming their intimate friend. Between saying I love you to a spouse and actually enjoying physical and emotional intimacy with that spouse. It is the difference between saying you believe someone or something is trustworthy and actually trusting them with something that is important to you. It is full participation in the reality of God and giving ourselves over to that reality. This is the most important kind of knowing in the human experience. It offers us the opportunity to give ourselves over to the one who loves us as we are and yet loves us too much to let us stay as we are. So as you hear this kind of description of knowing God in this way, if this lights a fire of longing and wanting to experience this kind of connection to the God who made you, know that this is exactly the kind of fellowship that John is inviting and proclaiming these believers to enjoy, to experience, to be reminded that they have. They wondered about the reality of their fellowship with God because of those who had left. Was it real? Was it true? What about those who left us? At one time, they, they appeared to have something that was real and true. What do we have? And John wanted them to know how real it was. How could they know? How could they know then? Well, they could know it was real through some of the qualities we'll see in this passage today that could be summed up as love-driven obedience. So let's read and unpack these verses. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. John wants them to know that they know God, that they have a genuine, intimate relationship and fellowship with God. And he's already laid out how that's possible in chapter 1. You believe the gospel message that's been revealed and proclaimed to you. You're brought into this intimacy. You confess your sins. You trust in Jesus, as we saw last week, as your advocate, as your atoning sacrifice. We're being cleansed. We're being forgiven. We're being brought into this fellowship. So how could they know for sure that this is their reality if it seemed to be true of those who had left? But it wasn't truly their reality. What about those of us who remain? John wants to give assurance to help them know that they know God, which is another way of saying that they have fellowship 
with the Father and the Son. John loves to say the same thing in different ways in these four verses and actually everything we've seen so far, a great picture of that. So let me show you, I think it will help us grasp these verses and then we're going to look at three big questions, I think, from this passage. So as we, as we see in verses 3 through 6, John says these genuine believers are those who know him, who have this truth in them, they're not liars, they are also those in whom God's love is being made complete, and they are in him and remain in him. These are all similar ways of describing genuine believers, those who know God. His truth is in them, God's love is being made complete in them, they are in God, they remain in God, or to use other language by John, they abide in God. Similar descriptors of genuine believers, but you also have similar descriptors of the evidence of genuine faith. Someone whose faith is genuine is someone who, as we see in verse 3, keeps his commands. Someone who keeps his word, we find a little bit later. Or in verse 6, someone who walks like Jesus walked. Different ways of saying the same thing. And the person who doesn't keep his command is also someone who is a liar and God's truth is not in him. So if we put all this together from the very beginning, I think I put this on a slide. Uh, go to the next one. <clears throat> um, being in fellowship with the Father and the Son, verses 3 and 6, chapter 1, can also be described as someone who's being cleansed from sin and unrighteousness, verse 9. Someone who's believing, trusting in Jesus as your advocate and atoning sacrifices. Last week we saw that. Someone who knows God, verse 3 of chapter 2. Someone in whom God's love is being made complete, verse 5. Someone who is in him and remains in him. All describing a genuine believer. All of these phrases are different ways of saying that. And another uh, comparison, walking in the light and not darkness, in chapter 1, verse 7, can also be described as someone who practices the truth, verse 6. Someone who confesses their sins, that they are a sinner and that they have sins, verse 9. Someone who, as we'll see today, keeps or obeys his commands. Someone who keeps his word. And someone who walks just as he walked. All saying these are evidences of being a genuine believer. So overall, I think the main gist of the passage is pretty obvious. If you want to know for sure if you are a genuine believer, it comes through love-driven obedience. Ongoing assurance is dependent on ongoing obedience. That's what John is saying. Without obedience to God's commands showing up in our life, at best, we should wonder, am I really in? At worst, you could just be a liar, a fake, and a fraud. This is actually my, my story. I shared my story in a long time, but I, I could. Like, growing up as a teenager, dad's a pastor, 50-plus years, I, I, be, I became a religious hypocrite. I would show up on Sunday, be the perfect little pastor's son, and then see how much hell I could raise the rest of the week. Living a dual life. Let me get away with what I want to get away. This is the fun life. And then let me pretend like I'm fine on Sundays. And I was at that time before Christ invaded me and radically changed me from the inside out. I was a liar. I was a fake. I was a fraud. The truth was not in me. God's spirit was not alive in me. So we're going to walk through uh, these three questions. First, what does it mean to know God? Second, what does it mean to obey his commands? And lastly, what does it mean for God's love to be made complete in us? So first, what does it mean to know God? For the Old Testament Hebrew, knowing God was more about God revealing himself and you being aware of that revelation. 
Most of the Old Testament language about knowing God had to do with the fact that people didn't know God and lived rebellious lives. But for this non-Jewish Greek and Roman background church, they would understand this kind of knowing as either it's a secret knowledge that you gain through human reason. We've unlocked the secret of the code. We have figured out how to be connected to God. Or they would understand it as something mystical and spiritual that couldn't be explained, just a heightened sense of reality that they had experienced. But John wants to give these believers more assurance than wondering if those experiences were, were real or if your secret knowledge through your reasoning was truly the right path. He paints a picture that we can actually have a relationship with the God who created us. Now, there are a few words translated as know in English. Uh, so in our English Bibles, we see the word know, K-N-O-W, but behind that in the original languages, there's other words. So if we, if we could read the original languages, then we would see this clearly, but the way I can help you is to point this out in our English Bibles. So sometimes it's a word uh, that someone knows something like they know the facts of a situation, and sometimes it's a word like I know you, we have a relationship. Both mean two different things. In verse 3, John says, this is how we know facts that we know him, relationship. To know God isn't just to know facts about God, but it's to know him in a personal way, which was mind-blowing to both the Jews in these, this pagan Greek, Greco-Roman world, that we can actually know God in a personal, intimate relationship. But it's what we've seen throughout this letter and we'll continue to see. It's what God wants us to know. It's what he's inviting us into. Knowing God is, is knowing truth and facts about him. You have to know God accurately. You can't just make up your version of God and say, I know that God. You have to know truth and facts. Doctrine is what we call it about him. But that leads to a genuine relationship with him. It is possible just to know a bunch of facts and not really know him. Now we get all this and we know this difference. Like we know all kinds of facts about athletes and actors and musicians that we love to watch and enjoy. We even know the words of their songs so well or the backstory so well that we can almost convince ourselves that we really know them. We know how they think. We know what they do in a certain situation. Like, we, we, would she really date a football player? I mean, he's so American, so not British. And to a certain degree, that might be true. Like you can already write the breakup song or at least AI for sure can. But here's the thing. As much as you know about that athlete, author, playwright, singer, whoever, they don't have a, sorry, they don't have a clue that you exist. They don't even know that you're on the planet. Maybe some other followers like one of your comments on a social media post and you think, oh, I'm getting close to that. No, they still don't know you exist. But the God of the universe who we can know, also know facts about, and know personally. Not only uh, can we know him, he knows us, and it was his idea to come and pursue us in relationship. Like if you got a message tomorrow that your favorite famous person was reaching out to you, got to, to get to know you better, you would, your mind would be blown. You would not be able to function. If any of the Dallas Cowboys wanted to know Cade Felter personally, he would not be able to go to class. Oh, my gosh. Right? But we have that and more from the God who created the universe. He has put in motion this entire plan of revelation over thousands of years, 
culminating in his son so that we may not only know the facts about him but actually be in fellowship with him. That is, in the deepest part of our being, we know him and he knows us. And it's a relationship of love and joy with the God who created us. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Anyone want to guess which word for know is used there in John 17, 3? It's not facts. It's relationship, intimacy. One other neat thing in this passage is it has to do with the tense of these words. So this is how we know, he says, which is the present tense, that we know, which is in the perfect tense, him. And then on into verse 4, who says, I've come to know him, also perfect tense. Now, you don't have to be an English major to know that English, in English, past tense is something that happened in the past and present is ongoing, happening now, and future, of course, is yet to happen. But what about the perfect tense? I'm not going to have a pop quiz or call on anyone, but it's basically something that happened in the past and has ongoing effects. That's the perfect tense. Has the party already started? Perfect tense. I have uh, become friends with him, something that happened in the past and has ongoing effects. I sure hope that's right. I Google that. If that's not, then we'll talk later. Um, knowing God is something for them and us, which has already happened, but its effects are ongoing. So we can have a present tense assurance, ongoing assurance that our knowing of God relationally is real and still has effects on us. God desires not only for us to have this kind of relational intimacy, but he desires for us to know all the time this is real. It's, it's mind-blowing. He doesn't want us to just enjoy him. He wants us to know that we're enjoying him and know that we have a relationship with him. This is unique to Christianity, most of all other world religions, and even some Christian denominations don't really teach assurance that you know that you know. How do you know that you're his? How do you know that you're forgiven? How do you know that you'll make it to heaven? How do you know you've done enough? Few other world religions offer the promise of the eternal state as a sure thing. Almost all of them are, well, you better hope you do enough because you don't really know until you're dead. And even some denominations in Christendom, like uh, Catholicism, where justification is a process, you hope you've done enough to keep the salvation you were given at your baptism. But here, John, speaking the words of God to his people, wants us to know that we know, that we have an actual relationship, fellowship, communion, intimacy with him. We don't just know the facts, we know the person. So how can we know? That's What's clear in this passage, we know through keeping his commands, keeping his word, walking just as he walked. So let's dig into what that means. So secondly, what does it mean to keep or obey his commands? Our lost culture, of course, completely rejects this idea. The Bible's not authoritative. God's commands are repressive and limits my freedom. I'm my own authority. I'm free to do what I want. And some of that seeps over into the church world. So we might view God's commands like a list of rules in a classroom. Right? We all experience this in school. Uh, you're in one classroom, and this teacher's really strict. You can't even chew gum, and this teacher doesn't really care. You can chew gum and talk. But you go to each room, and there's this list of rules, and your, your thinking behind the rules is, here's what I have to do to not get in trouble. Here's what I have to do to not have them call my parents. 
And sometimes that's the gist of God's commands. I do these things that God made up arbitrarily and I won't get in trouble with him. He'll like me. But his commands are so much more than that. And like in some ways, you might think of his commands like an instruction manual for a new toy or a tool that you buy. For those who actually read those books in seven languages, you'll, you'll find that there are images and pictures and instructions on how to put something together, how to make it work. And there will also be pictures describing uh, these are ways in which this toy was not designed to work. Don't do these things. Or this is a ways you don't use this tool. Don't use it in this way because you'll break it or you'll get hurt. So you can put it together right and use it right, and it should work for as long as planned obsolescence has ordained that it will work. Or you could do it wrong, use it wrong, and good luck. So sure, son, we can take your transformer and put it on the roof and let it jump down into the concrete driveway and see what happens. But that's not how the toy has been designed. And more than likely, it's going to shatter and we can't put it back together because you can't fix anything anymore. God's commands, first of all, aren't arbitrary. He's not blind, up there blindfold throwing darts against the wall to choose which commands he wants and which he doesn't. They flow from his own character and nature. They're in line with how, and they are in line with how he's created and designed life to function best. So that obeying his commands opens us up to our best life in this life. We know it's going to be amazing in the eternal state. We know that. But what's the best version of existence that we can experience now? Or as Jesus calls it, the abundant life. Now that doesn't say, and God's not promising, life would be easy and not hard, and we're going to be wealthy and not poor, we're we're going to be healthy and not sick. Those are all false gospels that are proclaimed mainly on television. It doesn't say we're not going to suffer and struggle. His commands are not a path to an easy life, but it is life with him and life as he's designed it to best function in the world right now. So one question that we might have is, so what commands is John referring to? Like, is keep his commandments. Is that the Ten Commandments? Is that the Sermon on the Mount? Is that other commands? Is this Paul, what Paul wrote? Well, it's always best to see that from the immediate context. So within the same letter is, is most helpful So John will say later in in chapter 3, verse 23, now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another as he has commanded us. This is the essence of John's letter, to believe in Jesus, who he actually was and is, and to love one another. Is this all we have to obey? Certainly not. This letter has other commands, but you could say this is most essential. We could just dwell on this. We could spend the rest of our life Just trying to live out those two realities. To fully believe in all of life and all that we are in Jesus Christ. To let the reality of Jesus living inside of us permeate every aspect of our existence. Every relationship. Every thought. Every action. Every motivation. And to love others as uh, we are loved. Like that could permeate all of our life. John knows that genuine belief in Jesus and loving each other is the foundation for much of the rest of the Christian life. But John would also say in his second letter, which really goes hand in hand with this letter, in verses five and six, so now I ask you, dear lady, who he was writing to, not as if I were writing you a new command, but one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commands. This is the command you have heard from the beginning, that you walk in love. If you know John's gospel, you know how essential the love of God, obedience to his commands, and loving one another was to John. 
John records Jesus making these connections throughout his gospel. John 14, 15, if you love me, Jesus says, the, the night of his arrest, you will keep my commands, talking to his closest disciples. Verse 21, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Verse 23 and 24, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you heard is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. There is a connection between genuine faith, loving Jesus, obeying his commands, and assurance. That all goes hand in hand. Now, this isn't saying that what's expected from us is sinless perfection to his commands. Because that would contradict what John's already said in chapter 1, that it's a sin to say you have no sin. And as we saw last week, we are a people who live in this tension of striving not to sin, really hating sin, but knowing we will continue to run to Jesus as our advocate and atoning sacrifice for cleansing. This is just a tension we live with. You can go back and listen to that from last week. So to what degree do we keep his commands to have this assurance? Like we, 75%, 80%. 51%, 50.111%, is that enough? Well, again, this is not math. This is a faith, this is faith in relationship. You can't put a formula on it, even though I know some of you math nerds would love to. This is another tension that we live with, not sinless perfection, not sinful indulgence and rebellion. It's something in between those things. We have lives more characterized by a desire and ability that comes from the Spirit of God in us and consistency and obedience than not. This gives assurance. The verb keeps or obeys is present tense. So keeping his commands, obey his commands, it's ongoing, continual, like you keep obeying his commands. And this is not some version of work salvation, like you obey in order to get a relationship with God. So you prove you're worthy of being saved or obey in order to keep the salvation you were freely given. Obedience is not a condition of relationship with God, but a characteristic of a relationship with God. We obey because God lives in us, not in order to get God to live in us or keep God living in us. Jeremiah saw this hundreds of years before when prophesying about the new covenant, he says in Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. And I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. This new covenant that we share in is known for all of us knowing the Lord and all of us having his law written on our hearts, not written on tablets of stone. A sign that this is true of us, that we share in this new covenant, is that we have hearts that love his commands. Now we could go through all of the Bible and talk about, well, here's the commands that are clear that we obey at all times, and here's the precepts, or, or the, rather the principles that kind of guide us in life, and and we can have those conversations and we should have those in community as we study the word together because certainly it's times that it is very clear and very easy to obey God and certainly there are times we get to 
these areas of gray matter issues where I'm not sure what to do in this situation. What is obedience to God's commands in this situation? And we work through that together in community, loving each other, helping us figure it out. But it's never, how can I get away with not obeying God? What can I do to get around the principles and precepts of God's word? How can I run from God in rebellion? That's never the posture of our heart. And when it is, then we have each other to come and have the spirit of God at work and the word of God at work to call us to repentance and faith again. So uh, you can also see this in the word keep or obey. It doesn't mean just to observe like we observe a holiday. It comes around once a year. We make much of it, but it doesn't really affect our daily life. No, this word is used in uh, the Septuagint. It's used in other places as a word that means duration, perseverance, guarding closely, observing diligently. We treasure and value God's commands, not just because it leads to our best version of life. It's not just about what we get, but because it's an expression of what God loves and desires. And because he loves us, we love him. And so therefore, we love and desire what he loves and desires. So let's see that in our last question we'll dig through. Thirdly, what does it mean for God's love to be made complete in us? I found this phrase in verse 5 incredible. Whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. Like who doesn't want that to be said about them? The love of God is complete inside of me. There was a debate among scholars and commentaries I read over what this phrase love of God refers to. Almost all of them believe this refers to our love of God and not God's love for us or God's general love for humanity or creation. This is a reference to our love of God as we obey him. Our love for him is made complete or the love of God is perfected. Some of your Bibles may say brought to maturity is another way of understanding this idea of made complete. It accomplishes its intended work and design. Its intended goal is being accomplished. That's what being made complete means. Now we'll see later in chapter five, this idea come back around. First John chapter five, verse three, for this is what love for God is to keep his commands and his commands are not a burden. So how does obeying God's commands bring our love for God to its completion or intended goal or finished design? So see the connection between love and obeying his commands. See the connection between God's commands flowing from his character and nature and how to know God is to love God and love life as God has designed life to flourish. It's complete trust in God. God, you say I will flourish and I will experience the best of you and the best of this life if I do life this way. I trust you. I love you. I trust you. That's what I'm going to do. Outside of God's commands is not life. We're not functioning as we were created to function. Within God's commands, there is true freedom. A fish is free to swim in water. A fish is not free if you put it on the bank. And life and the goal of God's love is happening in us as we love God and as we love others. Like so many want to reject God and reject his commands and how he's designed life, which means we have to reject God and his word. So, okay, if you do that, then who decides what is true and good and right? You, me, peers, 
Do we want a poll, maybe a blue ribbon committee, maybe a panel of governmental experts to determine what is true, good, and right? If it's not God in his word, like anybody feel better about what is true, good, and right being decided by any collection of humanity? Let's make it as simple as possible then. You decide. You decide what is true, good, and right for you. Thanks for that input. And I'll decide what is true, good, and right for me. And we'll just kind of all do our own thing. Each of us decide what is true, good, and right for ourselves. So then what happens when we conflict with each other because I'm pursuing what I think is true, good, and right, and you're pursuing what you think is true, good, and right, and we're not, then who wins? It's just power plays? We negotiate? We compromise? How does, is that a better life? No, we need someone outside of us to set the standards, someone who is good and wise and kind and loving, someone who gives us commands not to restrict our freedom, but to actually set us free to flourish, to experience life as God has best designed it. And this flows from a relationship of love. As we know God, as we know, therefore, what he loves and wants, i.e. commands, Because we love him, because we trust him, then we ask, help us to live as you want us to live because you know what's best, God. We trust you. We agree with you. It's like in a marriage or even a close friendship. Like the more you know this person, the more you know what they love and what they don't love. Like Jennifer does a great job celebrating birthdays around our house. So this past week, if she would have celebrated my birthday by making me a coconut pie... I would have been like, whose birthday is it? Who wants this garbage? This stuff tastes like grass, right? So it would not have been a loving thing for her to make me a coconut pie because it would have been like, she doesn't even know who I am. But she came to me and she asked for ideas and I was like, the only decision I want to make is not to make a decision. You just figure it out, surprise me. You know, so her and immigrants got together and they made me a oatmeal cream pie birthday mound of oatmeal, homemade oatmeal cream pie cookies, right? Yeah, there we go. That's good stuff because she knows what I really love and she loves me and wants to celebrate this birthday. And if I love her, I'm going to find a seven at the grocery store. So the next time she doesn't have to make do with broken candles, right? Now that's love. And it wasn't because I commanded it and she obeyed my commands. She asked me. I was like, I don't care. You decide. Surprise me. And they know me. And they did what they knew I would love. And that's a, that's a knowing one another, loving each other. With leads to a natural, I want to do what will be loving to them. And as we do those things, our love and affection grows. She's like, she was really excited to make that and present that. And we really had fun enjoying that. And as we enjoyed this gift that flowed from knowing and loving, then love and affection grew too, right? Knowing God means we know what he loves and we desire to align ourselves in ways that grow our affection and love for him. In other words, because we love God, we don't want to give God coconut pies. We want to give him oatmeal cream homemade pies because God loves those. And only Satan loves coconut pies. This is love. And as God enjoys what we give through obedience, our affection for him matures and grows and is made complete because we are aligning our hearts with his heart more and more. And the goal of his love is hitting the target. We are being changed. 
And this grows more trust and more love and more affection for, uh, in us, not only because we're obeying his commands out of love, but because some of his commands are things like love one another. Imagine a community of people who really loved and wanted to live out that one command. This giving and growing maturity in us by loving one another. Like, let's go crazy just loving each other, trusting each other, serving and sacrifice for each other, lavishing his love on each other. Like, what kind of love could we give? What kind of love would we receive if this were the community that is the crossing? Like, is anyone in here love too much? Is anyone in here just fed up with love? Like, stop, I feel so valued and affirmed, too cared for, too encouraged, too heard, too seen. Anyone just done with that because they've got so much? But often we hold back because we haven't been loved well and we're hurt. We hold back because we're afraid to love in ways that are lavish because now we're vulnerable to that person. Or maybe they won't receive it, and if they don't receive it, I don't want to give it. Or maybe it's not going to be reciprocated, and I certainly don't want to give that. Like, I get it. Like, I feel all of those same things in a variety of relationships, and it seems impossible to love each other well, and thus it seems impossible to obey his commands, and thus it seems like maybe I don't love God like I should, and I'm not living with assurance. And all of these snowballs of inadequacy turn into an avalanche of failure and despair. And this community doesn't flourish as much as God wants it to flourish because so many of us are struggling to be loved and to love, struggling to obey God's commands. So instead of love-driven obedience growing and maturing God's love in us, and this community being a place where God's love is tangible and felt and seen and heard, we're held back by our fears and our hurts. And I think we do love really well as a church. But does anyone think that we're experiencing all that God has for us to experience? To the degree that we have seen and felt this love for God and others through obeying his commands, like, praise God, this is the genuine work of the Spirit of God inside of us. It's true, it's real, it's happening. God is alive, he's alive in you, he is not dead. Shows we truly do know him. So be assured, enjoy this relationship God's given you. And then to the degree that we haven't or we don't, praise God as well because we're still alive. There's time and opportunity to run to Jesus from cleansing our sin and to get a fresh start. And he's alive here today for you, wherever you're at, for him to meet you, for him to speak his love over you, for him to reveal his love to you through his son Jesus, that he demonstrated his love for you, that while you were sinners, Christ died for you, and for you to see and hear and believe again or maybe for the first time, okay, you love me, I get it, I see it through your son. Let your love transform me. Change my heart to desire what you desire, to love what you love, to obey your commands, and to love each other. And I encourage you to respond in however the Spirit of God is calling you to respond today. Father, thank you for your word, that it is alive and it is well and it is active and it is shaping us, changing us. Thank you that um, as we continue to gather as the people of God, your word continues to be present. Your spirit continues to be present. And at any moment, on any day, at any time, you can do miraculous work in our hearts and lives. 
Like today could be the day of salvation. Today could be the day that someone is spiritually resurrected from the dead and brought into the family of God, no longer an enemy, but now a child because of the presence of your word and your spirit. And I pray it would happen for anyone here who needs that kind of life-altering transformation. But for those of us who are your kids already, we certainly need to be challenged, convicted, encouraged, loved. And so do that today, Father, and help us to respond in repentance and faith and trust. Transform us, God, so that you can work through us to transform others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.